0: Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks given to the Farnham U3A World History Group. In this talk, John Hambly tells us about the Amritsar Massacre and its aftermath. Please note the quotations used in this talk and the actions taken by the participants reflect attitudes held by some people. In April 1919. Such attitudes are not held by the speaker, John Hambly, the members of the Farnham U3A World History Group, the Farnham U3A, or the Mr. T. Podcast Studio.
1: In the period prior to the First World War, there had been an amount of agitation in India for a degree of self government in India the participants in the agitation can be loosely divided into three categories. The first category comprised the revolutionaries who sought their end by violence. Two bombs had been thrown at Lord Minto who was then Viceroy in 1905. That attempt failed by pure luck. One of the bombs missed their carriage. The other was deflected by an alert soldier who battered the bomb away with his sabre. A later attempt was made to assassinate Lord Harding, who was then Viceroy on 23 December 1912. A bomb was thrown at the howdah in which Lord and Lady Harding were riding. Fortunately <coughs> for them, the blast was mainly absorbed by the elephant driver who was killed. The Hardings were injured, though not that badly. The Indian National Congress, which had been founded by an Englishman, promote self-government for was itself divided into two groups. They were the extremists who sought self-government by street protests and by burning British cloth. The moderate faction, on the other hand, politely and respectfully petitioned the British to grant the Indians greater rights. The real problem from an Indian viewpoint was that they were, and under the British could only ever be, second-class citizens in their own country. The type of self-government that was being sought prior to the First War was dominion status. That is, they wanted to have a relationship with Britain which would have been similar to Canada, Australia, and possibly South Africa. That would have left Britain controlling foreign policy and defence, and probably other subjects as well. The British were particularly keen to hang on to control. India, as you all know, was the jewel in the crown. It was at a more mundane level, Britain's biggest export market. It took some 10% of British exports in the years prior to the First War. Whether that economic result was a result of a conscious policy to de-industrialise the Indian economy is a matter of debate, which I won't go into here. It should, though, be noted that certain industries, such as the production of indigo, were maintained to support the British textile trade particularly as the peasant growers of indigo would have far preferred to grow food, but they were coerced into growing indigo. In addition, India was a prime source of troops. Many of Britain's colonial wars were fought by Indian soldiers. And if you add the regular British army together with the Indian army together, it made one of the largest armies in the world. The racial attitudes of the British ranged from that of Edward VII, who seemed not to be racist at all, to those like Sir Michael O'Dwyer, who will feature heavily in our story. O'Dwyer, whose career was in the Punjab, was suspicious of all Indians and in particular loathed the Hindu bourgeoisie. In his memoirs, he quoted the the words of Sir John Malcolm to the effect, the Maratha Brahmins are keen, intelligent and active, but generally avaricious and often treacherous with approval. There's no doubt that O'Dwyer oh, do believed that. The range of views went up and down the scale, but seem all to have been tinged by what we would describe as racism in most, though not in all cases. In many cases, that was manifested in an attitude that Indians were like children who could not be trusted to manage their own affairs. One essential part of the British Indian thought world was the memory of the Indian mutiny. There was an apprehension which was not far below the surface that it might happen again. The consequence was that all disturbances tended to be viewed through mutiny eyes and that the response to such disturbances was dominated by the desire to nip potential mutinies in the bud. In view of the pre-war agitation, the British were very concerned to keep India quiet during the First World War. First, because of India's role as a source of troops, and material for the war effort, and secondly, to enable a reduction in the number of British troops stationed there. The British adopted two strategies. The first was the introduction of the Defence of India Act in 1915. That in part was at the instance of Sir Michael O'Dwyer. That appears to be modelled on the Defence of the Realm Act in Britain. The Defence of India Act gave the Indian government extensive powers to curtail civil liberties. The government could arrest and imprison on its say-so, it could hold trials in secret, it could hold trials without juries, it could make orders restricting where people could go and live. The second strategy was to promise that steps would be taken to promote Indian self-government after the war. The self-government provisions were encapsulated in the Montague-Chelmsford reforms, so-called after Edward Montague, the Secretary of State for India, and Lord Chelmsford, the then Viceroy. Those reforms were proposed in 1917. They satisfied no one. The men on the ground, that is, the British who were living in India, both as officials and as civilians, hated the reforms the Indians thought the proposals were far short of what had been promised. The reforms were based on a system of diarchy. Certain powers were to be allocated to the provinces where legislative councils with Indian representation were established. Important powers though, such as finance, foreign policy and defence were reserved to the centre which remained under firm British control. The Indian government was sufficiently concerned about agitation that they established a committee under the chairmanship of Mr Justice Rowlett of the High Court in London. He was brought out to India to chair the the committee and that committee was to consider what should be done about agitation after the war when the Defence of India Act would no longer be operable. The committee comprised two British members and two Indian members as well as the president. The committee presented its report on 15th April 1918. The report was unanimous, which I think is important. The report set out considerable detail about historic conspiracies going back into the 1890s, but not much about present conspiracies, probably because there weren't any. The committee expressed concern about the inability to obtain convictions because of the lack of admissible evidence, which as a lawyer I would have thought was fairly significant. The committee was concerned that once the war ended, the provisions of the Defence of India Act would no longer be available. The committee recommended that further draconian legislation be enacted, essentially continuing the wartime provisions into the peace. These would have the effect of continuing the extensive curtailment of civil liberties, so that the government would be able to restrict the movement of people, conduct trials by judge alone and in secret. The committee's recommendations were given effect to by the Anarchical and Revolutionary Crimes Act, also popularly known as the Rowlett Act. This also empowered the government to imprison people without trial. From a public relations viewpoint, the Rowlett Act was a disaster. The general feeling was that the government had, instead of taking a step to promote Indian self-government, had taken a step back. A number of of the Indian members of the Legislative Council, that is the Imperial Legislative Council, were so appalled that they resigned from the Council. Those members included Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who of course became the great Muslim leader. All the Indian members of the Council, with the exception of one member who was an official member, voted against the legislation. The Indians saw the Rowlett Act as undermining the promise of reform. The passing of the Act gave rise to considerable agitation all around India, in Delhi, in Bombay, in the Punjab and elsewhere. The public agitation was exacerbated by incredible rumours and I don't know where they came from. Some Indians believed, for instance, that the act would prevent Indians getting married. An outrageous view, but it was just, I think, typical of the rumours going about. Our concern this morning is with the agitation in Amritsar an important city in the Punjab and, perhaps even more significant, the centre of Sikhdom. The Punjab was then governed by Sir Michael O'Dwyer, who was a diehard. hard O'Dwyer was very sympathetic to the peasant and rural classes, but detested the urban, the educated and the political classes. His attitude was firmly paternalistic. During the war, he exerted considerable pressure to ensure that the Punjab supplied lots of recruits for the Indian Army. A total of over 360,000 were raised. That amounted to one in 28 of the Punjab male population. As a result, very severe pressures were exerted on Punjabi communities. It led to great dissatisfaction. Odovara also had no interest in developing politics or democratic institutions, and he equated... Agitation for self government with terrorism. Gandhi was sufficiently disappointed in the act that he called a nationwide hartle, or day when all the shops would be closed and a general strike would occur. Gandhi had returned from South Africa in 1915 and had been hitherto a strong supporter of the British war effort. He'd made great efforts, though unsuccessful, to recruit soldiers. He appears to believe that the British would honour their promises about self-government. He was not then the leader of the self-government movement. That was a chap called Tilak, who I think was in London at the time, and it is possible that he saw the act as an opportunity to promote himself. The Hartle scheduled for 30th March and another one for 6th April 1919. The Hartle took place in Amritsar on 6th April and passed off peaceably. Irving, the Deputy Commissioner, wrote a report filled with veiled allusions to conspiracies, but in fact it was quite peaceful. This panicked O'Dwyer. On 7th April, after a meeting of the Punjab Legislative Council, O'Dwyer asked one of the Indian members of the council, Razida Bhagat Ram, about the Hartel in Jalunda the day before. Ram said that it was a peaceful Hartle, thanks to the sole force of Mr Gandhi. O'Dwyer raised his fist and said, there is another force greater than Gandhi's sole force. And again, very much the attitude. The central government was sufficiently concerned that it made orders prohibiting Gandhi from travelling anywhere other than Bombay. That threw the leadership role in Punjab onto two locals, Dr Kitchloo and Dr Satipal. Kitchlu was a lawyer and Satipal was a doctor. The Punjab government wanted to have Gandhi deported to Burma, which, as you remember, is what happened to the last Indian emperor. The central government would not agree. O'Dwyer did issue orders forbidding doctors Kitchlu and Satipal from any political activity. On 10th April, they were summoned to the Deputy Commissioner's House, where they were served with orders requiring them to leave Amritsar. They were arrested and sent by car in secret to Dharam Salar, where they were imprisoned, and they stayed in prison quite some months. The two men were permitted to write letters. Kichlu wrote to his wife, and Satipa wrote to his father, explaining what had happened. Once the news of the arrests and deportations had circulated, many of the citizens became very annoyed. A peaceful and unarmed crowd formed and set off the Deputy Commissioner's bungalow to request the release of Kitchlu and Satipal. The authorities became apprehensive about what would happen if the crowd reached the civil lines where the bungalow was and so determined to prevent the crowd from p- crossing the railway line which divided the civil lines from the rest of Amritsar, A picket was established in front of the footbridge which crossed the railway line to prevent the crowd from crossing. The crowd became quite excited despite the efforts of various Indian barristers who were seen as having an authority over the crowd to calm it down. In due course, the pickets fired at the crowd while the barristers were still trying to calm it. The barristers were pretty upset as they fired while they were still among the crowd and nearly got hit. The picket managed to kill several men. The effect was unfortunate. The anger of the crowd was exacerbated by their perception that unarmed civilians seeking to present a petition to the Deputy Commissioner had been killed. The crowd's anger was then turned against any European that they came across. It appears that the officers in charge of the picket had panicked. Some of the crowd proceeded to move away from the railway back into the centre of the city. Two of the railway men were attacked. Station Superintendent Bennett was badly beaten up and a guard, T.W. Robinson, was killed. The crowd attacked the telegraph office and then proceeded down the main road attacked the Telegraph Office and then it attacked National Bank, which had remained in open on 6th April despite the Hartel and murdered two bank officials. The Chartered Bank was also t- attacked, that's a bit further down. The European staff of that bank were rescued by Ahmed, Jan and 25 police officers. The road down which the crowd was proceeding entered the Kotwali, Kw- Kw- or police station. The police scene, apart from the rescue of the chartered bank staff, to have been quite passive and to have made no attempt to control the crowd. Meanwhile, rumours started to circulate that the British had poisoned the water supply, which was a recurrent theme in India. In 1908, for instance, during the plague, the Indian noticed that only Indians were affected by the plague and it was rumoured that the British were the source of it. On the way into the city, the Crown drew near the female hospital. There was a dispensary opposite... Some of the wounded were brought, though the hospital refused to treat them. Dr Isabel Easdam was in charge of the hospital and decided instead to close it. She was standing on the roof of the hospital, watching the wounded being brought to the dispensary opposite. She inquired who had wounded the men. When she was told that they'd been wounded by the English, she said that the natives deserved it and served them right. She then referred to the doctor who was trying to treat one of the wounded as a fool, Unsurprising, the crowd, some of whom could hear these remarks, became even more excited and they stormed the hospital. Dr. Isdam was successfully hidden by her Indian staff. One of them later disguised her in a burqa so she could get away. Miss Sherwood, on the other hand, a missionary who ran various schools in the area, was not so lucky. She was caught up on a bicycle by the crowd and badly beaten. She was left for dead. She was later rescued by the Indian father of one of her students, who took her to his own house before she was taken to the fort where most of the British women and children had been taken for safety. The crowd at the railway bridge, or some of the crowd, moved towards Hall Gate. When they heard that the railway pickets had been reinforced, they were concerned that the military were going to besiege Amritsar. Seeing that as an offensive step, the crowd drifted back to the bridge. The Indian barristers continued their calming efforts. The picket had been reinforced with 12 men from the Somerset Light Infantry. Later that morning, the picket opened fire for the second time, but without any warning, and killed some 20 or 30 people. A number of them died instantly, a number of them were shot in the back. The result of all the rioting was that the British believed, by the night of 10th April, that they had lost control of Amritsar. On the evening of 11th April, Brigadier Dyer arrived. He apparently decided to leave Jalunda, where he was officer commanding, without any orders, but no one seems to have objected. He was then in his mid-50s. His career had been moderately, but not very successful. He was a brigadier, but not a higher rank. He told his son Ivan, who was serving in Jalunda, that Hindu and Muslim had united, and that he was concerned that trouble was coming. There's, again, a recurrent theme from the British viewpoint, you had to keep the Hindus and Muslims separate. If they got together, the British were terribly concerned it might be curtains for them. Da was born in India. His father was a brewer. He'd been born in, in, actually in the Punjab at Muria Hill Station. He initially attended Bishop Cotton School before being sent to Ireland for the rest of his schooling. He later returned Sandhurst before being commissioned into the British Army, in turn, before transferring to the Indian Army, he had served in Ireland, Burma, the Northwest frontier, Persia and Baluchistan. When he arrived, he immediately assumed command of the troops in Amritsar. The reason for Dyer turning up in Amritsar is an area that I think could be explored in greater depth. It seems quite strange to me that Dyer, who was officer Commanding Jalunda, should just abandon his command and proceed off to Amritsar without any orders. So there may be more to that than we know. The civilian authorities in Amritsar were sufficiently unnerved by what was happening. Indeed, they p- appear to have lost their heads that they handed control of Amritsar over to Dwyer, though martial law was not com- proclaimed until the 15th of April. Despite Odwyer's early request for martial law, the effect of the handing over authority to Dyer was that he appears to believe that he was not constrained by any law and acted accordingly. So on, on 12th and 13th April, he ordered the arrest of various people who'd been seen at various meetings without any warrants. On the morning of 12th April, they assembled a the force of 50 British troops and marched them through the hall gate, down to the town hall as a show of force. Later that morning, after a constant plane had reported that thousands of people were gathered near the Sultanwind gate. Dyer assembled a further force of 125 British troops, 310 Indian troops and two armoured cars. The force marched to the Sultanwind gate where they found the crowd. Initially the crowd was disinclined to disperse his it. They were shouting, Hindu Muslim Kaijai, meaning Hindu and Muslim unite. Some of the crowd spat on the ground as a sign of contempt for the troops. Dyer thought of firing on the crowd then, but decided not to, but to issue a proclamation prohibiting any meetings. Irving, the deputy commissioner, then persuaded the crowd to disperse. Dyer's reaction to the rioting was to assume that a state of rebellion existed. He may have been encouraged in that view by the views of O'Dwyer and his circle. Once the crowd in the Sultan Wingate dispersed, Dyer returned to his headquarters and drafted a proclamation prohibiting meetings. The British civilians were also incensed, they were in the fort. Most of them had been evacuated there. There on 12th April, a Mrs Ashford who'd complained to the deputy commissioner's wife about the inactivity of the authorities spoke to Dyer. She complained that the natives still had electricity so that they could use their lighting and their fans. That night, both the electricity and the water were turned off in the city as a collective punishment for the city. The military hoped that the deprivation of electricity and water would bring the city to its senses. Miles Irving, the Deputy Commissioner, when subsequently questioned by the Hunter Commission, found it difficult to credibly deny that the deprivation was an act of vengeance. At 9am on 13th April, a procession was formed in the city. It consisted of two police officers, Ashraf Khan and Babu who rode horses, followed by Malik Fatah Khan, the deputy revenue officer, and the town crier who was riding in a bamboo cart. They were followed by a detachment of troops who in turn were followed by Dyer, Irving, the deputy commissioner, and various civilian officials in open cars. The procession started from the town hall, went up the hall bazaar, and then proceeded along the western wall of the city, Stopping at each of the Hathi, Logar, and Lahore gates where dire sp- processions stopped, somebody beat a drum and the proclamation was read out. It was read out in Urdu and it was explained in Punjabi. While the s- southwestern part of the city was well covered, the central part and the eastern part, including Jalem Wallabar, were not covered at all. At each stop, the Deputy Revenue Officer read out two proclamations but explained them in Punjabi. For our purposes, the second proclamation, which is Dyer's proclamation, was more important. It had only been written that morning and no printed copies were available. The proclamation imposed a curfew from 8pm. Paragraph 3 of the proclamation stated, No procession of any kind is permitted in the city or any part of the city or outside of it at any time. Any such procession or gathering of four men will be looked on and treated as an unlawful assembly and dispersed by force of arms if necessary. The first proclamation, of which printed copies were available, also stated, "All meetings and gatherings are hereby prohibited and will be dispersed at once under military law." The procession continued for more than three hours, making 19 stops, it went nowhere near the Golden temple or in Molabar. Dyer I admitted to the Hunter Commission, I confess I do not know how far we penetrated into the city. I do not know the city very well. Consequently, he had to admit, there may have been a good many who had not heard the proclamation. Sunday, 13th April, was the day of the Basaki Festival, which is the anniversary of the creation of the Sikh community. As a result, there are a lot of people coming into the city from outside villages, despite the ban on third-class rail travel. Dyer, on his way back to his headquarters at Rambar, having ended the procession at about noon, was told that a meeting had been called that afternoon. The meeting had actually been called the day before, namely on the 12th of April, by a fellow called Hans Raj, and was in response to earlier proclamations. Dyer apparently believed that the meeting was an immediate challenge to his authority. Indeed, Dyer considered that the calling of the meeting was a deli- in of the proclamation. Dyer later said that, I knew that the final crisis had come and that the assembly was primarily of the same mobs which had murdered and looted and burnt three days previously. I don't know how he could have known that, but he said he did. And showed their truculence and contempt of troops during the intervening days. That it was a deliberate attempt, a challenge to the government forces and that if it were not, not dispersed, dispersed effectively, the sufficient impression upon the designs and arrogance of the rebels and their followers, we should be overwhelmed during the night or the next day by a combination of the city gangs and the still more formidable multitude from the villages. In calling the meeting, Raj had said that Lala Kanhaala would be attending. Kanhaala was a respected pleader or barrister, but he had not in fact been approached by Raj at all and was unaware of the meeting. The use of his name lent a veneer of respectability to the meeting and led some Indians to believe that it had the sanction of the deputy commissioner. The meeting called for thirteenth April was to be held at Jail Wallabar, which, despite its name, was not a garden but simply a piece of waste land. It measured 200 yards by 150 yards and covered about six and a half acres, Dar was told at 4 p.m. that the meeting was proceeding. He had 340 available troops. A number of other troops were left as a garrison for the fort, where the women and children were. As well, Dyer left a reserve of 50 men at his headquarters at Rambar and posted five pickets of 40 men each at the main gates into the city, including Hall, Lahore and Sultanwind. That left Dyer with 50 men, of whom 25 were Gurkhas and 25 were Balukis, from the 54th Sikhs, 59th Sindia Rifles. There were an additional 40 gurkhas, but they were armed only with kukris. The force was accompanied by two armoured cars, one of which was a Geoffrey Russell car, protected with armour plate, and with a revolving turret mounting a Vickers machine gun. The other was an armed lorry, also mounting a Vickers machine gun. The meeting commenced, and by th- 4pm the speeches had begun. The first two resolutions had been passed. They were... One, this grand meeting of the inhabitants of Amritsar looks with extreme indignation and disapproval on all those revolutionary actions which are the inevitable result of the inappropriate and inequitable attitude within the domains on the part of the government and entertains that the apprehension that this despotic conduct of the government might prove deleterious to the British government. The grand, And two, this grand meeting of the inhabitants of Amritsar Strongly protests against the despotic attitude of which the government adopted when the subject people invited the attention of the British subjects by means of the only effective and last expedient, namely passive resistance to improper legislation of the Government of India, i.e., the Rowlatt Act, which was passed in disregard of the united voice of the people. These were hardly revolutionary resolutions. The meeting was under observation by police officers. They were in plain clothes, but they were known to the members of the crowd. A local re- resident, Kushal Singh, was warned at about noon that he should not attend the meeting, as it might be fired upon. At about 3pm, Singh, who, despite the earlier warning, was at the meeting, was warned by policemen that soldiers would come and start firing on the people. Dyer and his men arrived at between 5 and 5.15pm. He deployed his men through one of the entrances... He did not deploy the armoured cars as they would not fit through the passageway. That's the only reason. Men were spread along the mound at one end of the bar. Dyer gave the order to fire without any warning. He directed the fire. He directed it first at the centre of the crowd where there were most people and after people were trying to escape through the entrances he directed the fire onto those entrances. The subsequent inquiry Dyer was asked, on the assumption that there was that risk of people being in the crowd, who were not aware of the proclamation, did it not occur to you that it was a proper measure to ask the crowd to disperse before you took to actually firing upon them? Dyer said, no. At the time, it did not occur to me. I merely felt that my orders had not been obeyed, that martial law had been flouted, and it was my duty to immediately disperse it by rifle fire. In answer to another question, Dyer said, my mind was made up as I came along in my motor car. If my orders were not obeyed, I would fire immediately. Dyer also admitted he could have dispersed the crowd without any firing at all, but did not try because he believed that the crowd would reassemble and he would look like a fool. He also admitted that he probably would have used his machine guns if he could have got the armoured cars through the entrance. In other words, Dyer had determined to fire if he found a crowd. His objective was to teach the Indians a lesson. Conveniently ignored. Martial law had not then been proclaimed. Dyer's men fired for about 10 minutes. They fired 1,650 bullets or 30 bullets per man at pretty much point blank range. It's unclear how many were killed and wounded. The best estimate is that 379 were killed, including some children, and over 1,000 were wounded. At least one of those wounded was hit by a ricochet outside the bar in any case. The British were very coy about accepting these figures and tried to downplay the casualties for a long time. Once Dyer's men had fired their ammunition, he turned around and returned to his headquarters. He made no attempt to have the wounded treated. He had no no attempt to find out how many people he'd killed. His first report said that about 200 were killed. O'Dwyer was first told about the killings by Gerard Watham, who was the principal of the Karsala College and, and a Mr Jacob, a civil servant. They drove up from Amritsa to Lahore on the night of the 13th to tell O'Dwyer what had happened. Wathan wanted O'Dwyer to disavow the shootings. Wathan later reported that he said to O'Dwyer, unless he wanted trouble in the future with the leaders and to stir up bitter political feeling both immediately and for years to come, he should immediately go to Amritsa himself have Dyer replaced and admit that a mistake had been made, not the actual firing, but in the amount that had been done. O'Dwyer was very annoyed at being spoken to like that, but took the advice to a very limited extent. He sent Kitchen, who was then the Commissioner of Lahore, to Amritsar to ensure that no more shooting took place. He did, though, allow his approval of Dyer's actions to be communicated to Dyer. Dyer had proclaimed a curfew from 8pm and enforced it by marching through the city with his troops at 10pm, this is on the 13th. This meant that the wounded who were still at jail in Wallabar could obtain no treatment overnight. The conduct of Lieutenant Colonel Smith, a civil surgeon, in treating some of the wounded on the 10th and then having them arrested ensured that few of the wounded sought his assistance. In any case... Smith refused to treat them, or to permit his assistant to treat any of the wounded. One case is recorded of a fellow called David Chand, who was wounded in the leg. His father could not obtain medical assistance. Some doctors refused because of the curfew, but others said that the martial law authorities had forbidden them from assisting the wounded. The upshot was the young man bled to death leaving a widow and two young children. A Dr Kidanath, who treated many of the wounded, noted that the injuries were either in the back or on the soles of the feet, suggesting they were shot while trying to disperse or while lying down. Dair, the following day, called a meeting of the local leaders, magistrates and men of influence and said in Urdu, "'You people know that I am a soldier and a military man. You want war or peace?' If you want peace, obey my orders and open your shops at once, or I will shoot. You must inform me of the bad mashes, I will shoot them. Martial law was finally proclaimed on 19th April, but at Odoi's request was backdated to 30th of March, so that men the authorities were convinced were behind the unrest it could be tried without worrying about any of the legal niceties, such as whether there was any admissible evidence. Dyer, in his enthusiasm for teaching the natives a lesson, made a number of orders purportedly under martial law, despite it not having been proclaimed. The most contentious of the orders was the crawling order. That required any Indian who was in Kucha Kuranwala, the street or alley in which Mr Sherwood had been attacked, to crawl the length of the street. Dyer did not bother to check whether the residents could exit their houses except along the street. Dyer claimed that this order was to stop his troops from taking reprisals, but it's more likely that it was a pure act of vengeance. The order was enforced, and an Indian, K. Yalal later gave evidence that he'd been forced to obey the order by being beaten with rifle butts. He saw one lame old Muslim being forced to crawl by being kicked and struck with rifle butts. That it's quite clear that neither Dyer nor Erdwyer, or indeed Many senior officers, in the, like Sir Frederick Hudson, the Agent General, had any interest in the technical niceties of guilt or innocence. If an Indian happened to be in the relevant place, he was punished without any investigation as to whether he was guilty of any offence. It's also clear that the punishments ordered by Dyer were intended to humiliate Indians and to emphasise to them that they were a su- subject race. This was the antithesis of reform. His other contentious order was to have the Provo-Marshal order public floggings for various offences. One of the flogging points was where Ms Sherwood had been attacked. Despite very strict censorship in the Punjab, news of the massacre started to leak out. The Times in London reported the incident on 19th April, but said that there were only 200 casualties. In the succeeding weeks, O'Dwyer made no attempt to find out how many casualties there'd been. Even in his memoirs, O'Dwyer never acknowledged the extent of the casualties. Although O'Dwyer believed that the Amritsar riots were part of a conspiracy against the British, he was never able to find or produce any evidence to that effect. Some British intelligence officers apparently believed that the Amritsar riots were part of a conspiracy financed by the Bolsheviks, but in May, the Director of Central Intelligence pointed out there was no evidence to that effect. Even Millicent Wathen, whose husband, Gerard, had warned O'Doire of the probable consequences of Dyer's action, wrote to a friend in England. The order went out that no meetings were to be held. The Blackguard leaders told the mob that we should never dare to fire, so a huge meeting elected. They got their deserts this time. for The troops were ready and fired and killed over 200, and a good thing too. Fear is the only thing by which you can rule a wild, uneducated crowd and thank heaven Sir Michael and General Dyer acted as they did. I don't care what Gerard says or any of the other sentimentalists. The shooting was drastic, but it was needed, and it has done more good than 100 years of soft talk and reasoning, and I believe it will carry more weight than all the subtle lies and reasonings of these seditionists. For the people have learnt that after certain limits, we do at last turn and hurt, and that is a fact. The reverse of those views can be seen in the testimony of Mian Ferrer's an honorary magistrate. He described how terrified people were of being flogged for failing to salam the general, the way the British treated prisoners, and the effect on Indian opinion. He himself had seen evidence of torture inflicted by the British. The British tried to maintain a strict blackout over, over what had happened, so that when the Bombay Chronicle published some account of what was happening in the Punjab, its editor was immediately deported. Unsurprisingly, the details of the massacre gradually emerged. While officials derided the Indian estimates of the casualties, they made no attempt to determine how many were actually killed and how many were children, and some of them were. Martial law was lifted on 9 June. The British government had realised that news of the massacre was likely to adversely affect attempts at reform. Montague, as Secretary of State, directed Lord Chelmsford to hold an inquiry into the disturbances. Lord Chelmsford formally announced the inquiry on 14th October 1919. The inquiry was into all the Rowlett Act disturbances in India. It was not limited to the disturbances in the Punjab. It was chaired by Lord Hunter, a Scottish judge, and consisted of four British members and three Indian members. Two days later, an unofficial investigation was launched by the Indian National Congress. It only covered the disturbances in the Punjab. It is reasonably clear that the intention of the government inquiry was to whitewash the government. Unfortunately, there was no cooperation between the two inquiries. Congress refused to participate in the Hunter inquiry while Drs. Kitchlu and Satipal were still imprisoned. By the time they were released as a result of a government amnesty and Congress indicated it was prepared to participate, the Hunter inquiry had finished its hearings in the Punjab and refused to reconvene. The result was that the Hunter inquiry only questioned official witnesses, while Indians who were not official spoke to the Congress inquiry. The British authorities were sufficiently concerned about the disturbances. They they rammed an act of indemnity through the Legislative Council to exonerate any of the officers whose conduct might otherwise have been open to attack. The effect of the act was that no action could lie against any officer for anything done under martial law in good faith, and in the reasonable belief that the action was necessary for the purposes of martial law. As a whitewash, the Hunter inquiry was a failure. Two reports were submitted. One was by the British members, and while it was mildly critical, reserved its main criticism for Dyer. The minority report was from the Indian members. While the minority agreed with the majority on many points, it came to different conclusions with regard to Dyer and O'Dwyer. While the majority report criticised Dyer in its own rather restrained terms, The action taken by General Dyer has also been described by others as having saved the situation in the Punjab and having averted a rebellion on a scale similar to mutiny. It does not, however, appear to us possible to draw this conclusion, particularly in view of the fact that it is not proved that a conspiracy to overthrow British power had been formed prior to the outbreaks. They also said, in continuing to fire for as long as he did, it appears to us that General Dyer committed a grave error. They also concluded that Dyer's desire to pr- produce a moral effect by prolonged firing was a mistaken concept of his duty. They failed to condemn his, fa- his failure to assist the wounded. With regard to the crawling order, the majority said, the order has certainly opened the objection that it caused unnecessary inconvenience to a number of people and that it unnecessarily punished innocent as well as guilty. Above all, from an administrative viewpoint in subjecting the Indian population to an act of humiliation, it has continued to be a source of bitterness and racial ill feeling long after it was recalled. During the hearings, the Indian members fell out with Lord Hunter, who was intolerant of anyone having a point of view different to his own. As a result, the members were not on speaking terms by the time the report was issued. The minority was far harsher about Dyer than the majority. They said... General Dyer wanted, by his action Jalin Wallabar, to create a wide impression and a great moral effect. We have no doubt that he did succeed in creating a very wide impression and a great moral effect, but of a character quite opposite to the one he intended. The story of this indiscriminate killing of innocent people, not engaged in committing any acts of violence, but assembled in a meeting, has undoubtedly produced such a deep impression throughout the length and breadth of the country so prejudicial to the British government, that it would take a great deal and a long time to rub it out. The action of General Dwyer, as well as some of the acts of the martial law administration to be referred to hereafter, have been compared to acts of frightfulness committed by some of the German military commanders during the war in Belgium and France. It was pleaded that General Dwyer honestly believed that what he was doing was right. This cannot avail him. He was clearly wrong in his notion of what was right and what was wrong. And the plea of military necessity is the plea that has always been advanced in justification of the Prussian atrocities. General Dyer thought he had crushed the rebellion, and so Mokul O'Dwyer was of the same view. There was no rebellion which required to be crushed. Until the findings of the Hunter Commission, Dyer had received the full support of the army. He was promoted on the... Outbreak of the Third Afghan War and played a significant role in it. Once the Hunter Commission had issued its findings, the Government of India on 3 May 1920 referred them to the British Government for its instruction. In doing so, they wrote: "Nevertheless, after carefully weighing all these factors, we can arrive at no other conclusion than that at Jallianwala Wallabar, General Dyer acted beyond the necessity of the case." beyond what any reasonable man could have thought to be necessary, and he did not act with as much humanity as the case permitted. The Viceroy referred the matter to the Commander-in-Chief, Sir Charles Munro, who despite earlier support given to Dyer, realised that Dyer had to leave, and he insisted on Dyer's resignation. Dyer then returned to England, where there was a great outcry in the conservative press about Dyer's treatment. There was a debate in the House of Commons which did censure Dyer despite a spirited defence of Dyer by Sir Edward Carson. Churchill, the Secretary of State for War, argued that the empire was based on strong moral foundations. He argued, we cannot permit this doctrine, i.e. the tactics of terror in any form. Frightfulness is not a remedy in the British pharmacopoeia. On the other hand, the House of Lords passed a motion that this House deplores the conduct of the case of General Dyer as unjust to that officer and as establishing a precedent dangerous to the preservation of order in the face of rebellion. Meanwhile, on the day of the debate in the House of Commons, the Morning Post, the conservative newspaper started a fund for General Dyer as the man who saved India. Quite rapidly, the fund grew to £26,000, a substantial sum in 1920. The Army Council determined that Dyer would be offered no further employment. He was already suffering from poor health. He then had two strokes and he died in 1927. Kipling, who had been a a contributor to the fund, sent a wreath to his funeral with a somewhat two-edged comment which read, he did his duty as he saw it. What were the consequences of Dyer's actions? In the case of Gandhi, he realised that the Indians had nothing to gain from the British and started to devote himself to creating a coalition of Muslims and Hindus to oppose British rule, albeit in an violent way. That co- conjunction was a great concern to the British, who usually relied on the support of the Muslims against the Hindus. Until Amritsar, as I have indicated, the Indian self-government movement was seeking dominion status. Thereafter, Indians realised that they needed complete independence. It would, I think, be correct to say that Amritsar did more than any other one incident to promote Indian independence. There is another I- issue that's worth considering. Kim Wagner, in what is generally a good book on Amritsar, makes the argument that Amritsa was simply an example of the way in which the empire was based ultimately on fear. In Making that argument, he points to other examples, such as the retribution exacted by the British when putting down the mutiny. As he points out, the Crawling Order had its origin in a similar order made by General Neal, who forced Indian prisoners to crawl and lick up the blood in the house in Kornpor where the women and children had been killed. Churchill's speech in the House of Commons was an attempt to argue that atrocities such as Wallabar were an exception, that the empire was actually based on moral force. He asserted, governments who have seized upon power by violence and usurpation have often resorted to keep what they have stolen. but The august and venerable structure of the British Empire, where lawful authority descends from hand to hand and generation after generation, does not need such aid. Such ideas are absolutely foreign to the British way of doing things. Wagner's argument is that the reliance on what he calls racialized violence was part and parcel of the way the empire was governed. As well as examples from the Indian Mutiny. He refers to bombing of civilians in Iraq. He also refers to the use of bombers against unarmed crowds at Gujranwala Ranwala during the round attack disturbances. Some RAF planes were sent there to bomb and machine gun the civilians, uh, and they did, and they caused many casualties. Wagner also obtained support from a speech by, by J.C. Wedgwood, a Labor member in the Dyer debate in the House of Commons where he said, the complaint is not that General Dyer committed this crime. It's not just a question of punishing General Dyer. I agree with Mr Gandhi, the great Indian, representing, I think, all that is finest in India, when he said, we do not want to punish General Dyer. We have no desire for revenge. We want to change the system that produces General Dyer. Wagner also goes on to accuse Churchill in his speech of hypocrisy, particularly in view of the fact that Churchill as Secretary of State for War, was not far from unleashing the black and tans against the Irish nationalists as a means of repressing them not long after. Without seeking to deny the force of the argument, I do not think it can simply be confined to the empire. The British did similar things at home. There I'm referring in particular to the Peterloo massacre There are also other examples of troops, particularly in the later 19th century, firing on strikers. I suspect it's the response of any ruling group when under what appears to be an existential threat.
0: The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A History Group, or the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening.